Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon. Calvary meets in the Joppa Falston area between Baltimore and Bel Air, and our pastor is Josh Plantholt. Come join us on a Sunday. Our service info is at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching. Uh, Revelation chapter 13. Uh, we're, we're, our text is going to pick up in verse 7, but let's get a running start at verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. This sea beast, if you remember from last week, is the Antichrist, is Satan's son, the seed of the serpent who would bruise the seed of the woman's heel but he would ultimately crush his head. So when we start reading of Satan's son, we should start knowing a head crushing's coming to him eventually. But for now, he's biting heels. <clears throat> uh, with, uh, I, I, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with, a, with ten diadems, crowns on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. You know, this just hit me for the first time. You notice the more beastly people become, the more blasphemy they speak. <laughs> uh, we're seeing that more and more people can only communicate through coarse language anymore. It's a beastly characteristic. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they Worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name. Are you noticing a theme there? And his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. New territory, verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Let's pause here. In light of all of Satan's defeats in chapter 12, he made war on the child and lost. Then he got mad and he made war in heaven and lost because Michael came out and spanked them and threw them to the earth. And then he made war on the Israelites. Remember, a flood came forth from his mouth and the ground swallowed up the flood. And so he tries to make war on faithful covenant Israel and he fails. And in chapter 12, we see failure after failure after failure. But now we come to verse 7. This verse and Satan's son, the sea beast, is conquering the church. And we should pause. Satan wasn't permitted to eat the child. He wasn't permitted to overthrow heaven. He wasn't permitted to drown the Israelites. But here's Satan's son, conquers the church. And this is puzzling. Now the answer for why is coming in a bit, but for a moment we should stop here and go, why would God allow that? Why would God allow his people to be overcome by evil in any capacity? It doesn't seem to make much sense. Let's keep reading. <clears throat> And authority was given it, the sea beast, over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwelled on the earth will worship it. In the book of Revelation, we have already seen that heaven 
is going to be filled with people from every tribe, every people, every language, every nation. What a glorious promise that there are so many people in heaven they can't even be counted. Like, I love that good news because sometimes you can read and go, is anyone going to get saved? You know, remember, remember the apostle said that, Lord, who can be saved? And God says, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And what we see is that God, in his sovereign beauty, saves so many people, they cannot be counted in heaven. And notice they're not all from Ireland or from Korea. It's people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. God loves all peoples. But now we're also seeing the same phrase, phrase here applying to people who worship the beast. And this tells us that there will also be people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue in hell. And here we see it's because they worship the beast, the two beasts, Satan and his son. Let's keep reading. An authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwelled on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life uh, of the Lamb who was slain. We got to pause here. <laughs> Let's talk about this book. I love books. I love books. And apparently God does too because he writes books before the book, this book. And he has a book called The Book of Life, The Lamb's Book of Life. Now, I came to this when I was preparing this week, and I, I, I got struck with something. I am the pastor of this church, which to this day tickles me. I can't believe God lets me do this. I just am so giddy, giddy over this, and hopefully I never lose that. Um, but as your pastor, I honestly, I strive to be honest with you always. Because I cannot bear the thought of anyone stepping into heaven who has attended this church ignorantly. If someone here wakes up in hell one day, I do not want them to find themselves there unwarned. So as many warnings as there are in scripture, I warn you. And there are, there are so many warnings in Scripture, and I warn when they appear because I love you. And if I love you, I'll warn you. And I warn you because I want you to know the truth. And not only the truth that makes us feel good, but the truth that saves. If I'm sitting here going, oh, God loves you, God loves you. Oh, what? You're piled high in sin and running from God? Ah, it's fine. I don't love you. I love me. <laughs> I want you to like me, and I don't care about you, but if I love you, I'm going to tell you the truth, and the truth that saves, not pacifies. The Word of God is called a sword, not a blanket, <laughs> and it's awesome and powerful and sharp and divides between soul and bone and joint and marrow. It's active and living and powerful, and the truth is that God is a good God, our God is awesome. <laughs> and he is kind. You know how you know God's kind? He hasn't microwaved you yet. <laughs> God is so kind, especially this section up here. <clears throat> he is so generous with us. Like, it's unbelievable. 
and he's loving, and he's merciful, and he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, it says. But did you know that God's also a judge? And this judge looked on the whole of humanity, and he saw that we were all guilty sinners. And in God's abundant kindness, he came up with a plan. I will send my only begotten son to die for the sin of the world. And he enacted a plan to send his son to die on Mount Calvary on that cross. And it was at the cross that God was both the just, as Paul would say, and the justifier. He got to be that judge, the righteous judge, the holy judge, the judge without compromise. If you have spent your life brutalizing people, and in a sense we all have in some varying degree, and if God lets you into heaven without dealing with that, he is not just. That means he's also not good. That also means he's not loving. But because God is good, because God is loving, he must be just. His love demands justice. And so someone had to pay for your sins. And because he loves humanity so much, he sent someone to pay for those sins, his only begotten son. So at the cross, God got to be just. But also at the cross, God also got to be merciful. He got to send someone to die in your stead, to pay for the wages of your sin, which is what? It's death. So God got to be both the just and the justifier. And hell. No one's recorded talking about hell in the Bible more than Jesus. Because nobody in the Bible loved more than Jesus. (laughs) And so if I'm going to be a faithful slave of his master and I must follow him, I must be honest as he was honest. And so as often as the warnings come in Scripture, I must warn you. But at the same time, the Bible's not just a book of warnings now, is it? You know, one of the great ways, here's a tool. A great way to figure out if a teacher is a heretic is to figure out if they only teach one side. If you have someone and they're only preaching legalism and we need to live right, we need to be holy, and and they never talk about the grace of God, you know you're dealing with a manipulator or someone who doesn't know any better. And if you talk to somebody and you listen to somebody and they're only talking about the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, but they never talk about that God is holy. You're dealing with the same thing just on the other side. But when you read the word honestly, it's both. They're both, they work together that God is both just and the justifier. He's both almighty God and don't you dare mess around, but God, he's patient with us. And so the Bible is not just a book of warnings, it's also a book with, uh, of glorious, unsurpassed, joyous truths. It's a book filled with delight and laughter and merrymaking. I love that story when God finds Gideon hiding in the wine press. And he goes, hello, mighty man of valor. You know, he's got to clean his shorts, you know, and he's talking about he's the mightiest man in Israel. We're supposed to chuckle at the humor of God. And for all the hard things we have to read in God's word, verse 8, our reading today, verse 8 contains an inexhaustible reason to celebrate. And that is in the reality and the truth of the Lamb's book of life. This is not heavy. This is light. This is beauty. So before we get into verse 9 and 10, we got to get into this. So a few thoughts on this book of life. First, 
What is it? <laughs> what is the Lamb's book of life? And you ready for this? It's a book. I know, I know. My brilliance is unsurpassed. Um, <laughs> everybody who will ever be in heaven, who will ever be saved, their names are written in that book. Do you want to be in heaven one day? Then you want your name written in that book. It is the book of life. It means that when you die, and it is permitted for all men to die, that when you die, you do not stay dead, but like the Lord, you resurrect to new life, eternal life. And if your name is not written in that book of life, it means that when you die, you stay dead in eternal death in the lake fire. Now, secondly, I want you to notice that verse 8 calls the book the book of life, but then it says that it is the Lamb's book. This is the Lamb's book of life. I was thinking, why a lamb? (laughs) Can't you see if someone was making this up, wouldn't you choose something more powerful than a lamb? (laughs) Wouldn't you say the book of life that belongs to Jesus, our Lord, Kurios? You would choose something powerful. Or or why not the, the book of life that belongs to Yahweh, El Shaddai, Adonai? You would build upon the covenantal names of God through the Old Testament. But here it's a lamb, so why a lamb? And the reason, it's profoundly simple. Because every human who is in heaven has been saved because the Lamb of God was slain. That book, the book that says whether you are going to heaven or not, that book would not have one name written in it if Jesus did not die for the sin of the world. If he did not become a lamb without spot and blemish blemish, and was bled out to death on that cross, there would not be one name written in that book. There would not be one human in the city, the new city of Jerusalem. And I can't help but to think that there are some, uh, some Exodus themes in here. Whenever we think about Passover lambs, we should probably think about the Passover On the night of the Passover, in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, in the land of Goshen was where the Israelites lived, when the angel of death in the book of Exodus swept over the land and killed all the firstborn, what was the one thing that had one house fall under judgment and they lost people? And what was the other thing that made another house come under grace? The blood of the Lamb. Those who put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their door, they were the ones who were saved. There was no other indication. It wasn't those who put the blood there and were good taxpayers. It wasn't who were under the blood and didn't curse so much unless the Ravens game was on. There was no, there were no other indications except for the blood of the lamb. And those who came under the blood... We're spared. It will be no different stepping into eternity. If you are going to be accepted by God on the day of judgment, it will be for one reason. Because you placed yourself under the protection and the blood of the Lamb. It is only those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. It is only those who will be spared from God's wrath. It is only those whose names will be written in this beautiful, glorious book.
It is the Lamb's book of life because it is the blood of the Lamb that provides life, eternal life. And there is no other name under heaven that puts your name in that book. Do you see anyone else's name written on the front of that thing? Is it the Lamb and Mohammed? Is it the Lamb and Buddha? There is one name under heaven in which all men are saved. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, it's the book of life, not the book of the good taxpayer. The book of the good philanthropist. The book of the good mother. The book of the good father. I'm sure a lot of decent parents drowned in Noah's flood that day. I'm sure a lot of taxpayers and important people who tried to do social change good drowned on that day. That is not what saves us, loved ones. We do not have a religion of morality. We have a religion of a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. If we're going to step into heaven to save, it will be because of the Lamb. Now, thirdly, I want you to see verse 8 tells us a little detail here. I'm going to read it for you because I'm excited. (laughs) And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written, what does it say next? Before the foundations of the world were laid. The foundations of the world. I want you to note again the verse 8, that this beautiful book was written before the world was made. This means... If your name was written before the world was even formed, this means that before you were even born, God loved you. How cool is that? Especially if you're a parent, this hits a little different, you know, because, you know, mom is waddling and she's feeling kind of gross. But like as a dad, it's like, I already love my kid and he's not here. You know, God loved us before the foundations of the world were even laid. This also means before you committed the most grievous sins in your life, God knew what you would do, he knew what you would be, and he knew what you would say, and still, he loved you. (laughs) You ever sin and then feel like you placed yourself outside of the love of God? (laughs) If God's working in your life, sometimes, you know, that'll happen. God, I've gone too far this time. I've stepped over the line. I know it. God loved you before you even thought about stepping over the line. And he knew you'd step over some imaginary line in your head. The other thing this tells us, this means before you had done anything good with your life, before you had any semblance of faith, he still, he chose to love you. You know, this passage also tells us before Adam and Eve plunged mankind into sin, God knew that all mankind would fail. You ever think about that? He made these perfect people and go, they're going to reject me. Just as God gave the angels in heaven free will, so he gave humanity free will. And he knew, just like how a third of the angels were going to fall into rebellion, God knew that 100% of humanity was going to fall into rebellion. And yet God still made us anyways. (laughs) And he didn't have to do that. Did you know that? God didn't have to make humanity. God doesn't need us. If God needed us, he ceases to be God. (laughs) And God's happiness 
His glory, his beauty is not predicated upon mankind. And yet, he made us anyways. And he knew that we would reject him. And so before the foundations of the world were laid, before Genesis 1-1, God had created a book. And the triune God agreed that the Lamb, Jesus, would sacrifice his life to fill that book with our names. And I know many people do not like the doctrines of election, but I have found them consistently to be the most sweetest verses in the Bible. That before the foundations of the world were laid, God loved you. And he wrote your name, your whole name out. I wonder how long he took. Was it like an Alakazam thing and the book was filled? Or did he take 10,000 years? A little hard on the, for the period on the eye, you know? Oh. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Every name he hand wrote. Now, fourthly, here's the question we should have. How do we know that our names are written in this book? <laughs> I want to know my name's written in that book, don't you? <laughs> I want to know that my name's going to be read out loud when God starts reading those books. So how do we know? Does God want us to just step into eternity going, hope this works out? (laughs) I don't think so. Well, what we have just been told is that if your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, you will have evidences of it on earth. Here we see in the end times, they will not worship Satan. The spirit of God that is alive and those written in his book will not worship Satan and his son in the last days. Let's just say the trumpet sounds, we are all taken out here and I'm probably a little slower because I'm heavier, but we all, we all get up and meet the Lord in the air and let's say a few people are left behind and I hope not, but let's say, and they get saved. It was real. The fat guy was telling the truth and they start crying. They get saved. The antichrist comes and he demands worship. If those people are truly saved, they will not bow the knee on that day. They will refuse to worship the beast and his son on that day. And what we're going to see probably next week is the same is true with the mark of the beast, 666. As the whole world must get this mark, God's people will refuse the mark. What verse 8 is telling us, and this is all throughout the Bible, that those who are recorded in the Lamb's book of life, if you really want to know if you're truly saved, you will have evidences of your salvation here on earth. In today's passage, please understand, the believers are not saved because they refuse to worship the beast. It is because the believers are already saved that they refuse to worship the beast. And there's a big difference there. Their refusal to worship was evidence that their names were already written in the book. So let me put it this way. You were saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Christ plus nothing. Did you know that? We just ran through this with the Exodus. The blood of the lamb plus nothing. You do not need good works to be saved. We do not need good works to be written in the Lamb's book of life. If you did, the logical question is, how many? How many works do I need? Do I need to open an orphanage? Do I need to sell my house? Because, sure, I'll be homeless if that means I get into heaven. God, where's the line? But that's not the line at all. It is Christ plus 
Nothing. You don't need to save the whales. You don't need to rescue puppies. You don't need to chain yourself to a tree. All you do to be written in this book is to believe in the Lamb. You do not need good works to be saved, but the saved do produce good works. This is a huge distinction we all must understand. What did Jesus say? How will you know if someone's a believer? How will you know a good tree? By its fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. (laughs) You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is clear as day as he lays this out that God's people act like God's people. Now, this does not mean that believers are perfect and sinless, because if you're a brutal self-critic, you're going, you know, I stubbed my toe and said a no-no word this morning, I must not be saved. And you come up with examples of why you have bared bad fruit at some point in your life. This does not mean that believers are perfect and sinless, but as it pertains to the end times, when all other people are bowing to knee to Satan, the believer stands. Isn't this the story in Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? When all others bowed the knee to the tyrant, King Nebuchadnezzar, God's people said, nah, the furnace is a lesser problem than giving you my soul. And as this pertains to us in our generation, God's people will resist the works of the devil. They will wrestle against principalities and powers of the unseen realm. Please hear me. You do not need good works to be saved, but the saved do produce good works. And as we see here in Revelation, you do not need to resist evil to be saved, but the saved do resist evil. We stand when all others fall. And so a tiny footnote here. Because I understand that when I, when I start talking about the necessity of holiness and sanctification in the life of the believer, some of God's most precious saints go, oh, I'm a sinner. And then the person who needs to hear this the most is sitting there cold as a stone going, I hope they're hearing it. Uh, <laughs> sure, I did a pound of cocaine last night, but I hope this jerk next to me hears it. They got coffee breath. You know, and they... <laughs> so I got to be sensitive here. I gotta be sensitive here. What if you have been so intertwined with sin recently? Let's go down that road. You're just not doing good spiritually. Maybe you're listening to what I'm saying and you're looking at your life and, and, and you've been giving yourself to lust or anger or greed or bitterness or jealousy or, or whatever. You're starting to see some rot in the tree. What I don't want you to gather from what I just said is, I must be damned because I'm sinning. Uh, I, I, I must not be saved because I'm, I, I'm sinning. Now, biblically, if you persist in your sin and reject Jesus Christ, then yes, you will be damned if you reject Jesus Christ. 
But often, like the Apostle Paul, God calls us out of sins, in the middle of our sins, to make us new. You may not have evidence of God working in your life at all, but that could change in an instant. The Apostle Paul was on his way to receive a promotion for mistreating Christians. And that's when God goes, there's my guy. (laughs) No one opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ more than Paul. He was drowning in perversions when God says, now your life belongs to me. God's people are not without sin. The apostles, like the prophets, like the end times believers, they're going to be just like us. Don't read the story of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and Esau and Enoch and, and all these people and go, they must be holy. They were born shot with a holy gun and they just, they were just like us. And the end times believers who are going to defy tyrants of unspeakable evil are going to be just like us. People who were saved with shady pasts, with a long list of sins and faults, but at some point, because they were written in the in God's book of life, God grabbed a hold of them, and they grabbed a hold of God. And they were made new, and the transformation began. So hear me, if you have been living in sin, then it's time to stop. <laughs> It's time to be born again, rededicated, made new, whatever you want to call it. Just look around. Look at what's happening to our country. Look at what's happening to the world. Look at what's happening to you. Are you more stressed out than you were five years ago? Probably. Look, every evil is intensifying. Look at what's happening to marriages. Look what's happening to our kids. Time is running short. And if you are God's person, then you need to start showing evidences of it. If you are God's person, you need to reject evil. You need to turn from sin and run. Run to Christ and be made new. The time is at hand, I'm telling you. The time is at hand. If you want to be in that book, show that you're in that book. Because there's the evidence. You don't have to have a question mark before you step into eternity. God's showing us that here now. Now, verse 9. We get to keep going. I was so tempted to just keep talking about the book. And I go, no, we got to go faster. So two more verses. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. That's it. We have been reading future events for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. God has been revealing the future to us, but then almost abruptly, here in verse 9, he stops. Has anyone ever seen the movie The Princess Bride? Okay, if not, you're in sin. You need to go see that later today. Um, <clears throat> not really, but you know, do yourself a favor. Uh, uh, well, in the movie The Princess Bride, uh, the, the grandfather is, is reading a book to his grandchild. And, and when he's reading the book, you get to see images of the book. You know, the, that's the movie, the book being read out loud. But, but every once in a while in the film, 
The story stops because the grandfather stops telling the story to check in on the grandson. And when he stops reading the book, it's jarring because the film just stops and it's just an old guy talking to his son. It's a grandfather and his son. And in some ways, this is what God is doing here. He has been giving us picture after picture, image after image. The Greek is semino after semino of things that were going to happen in some way, like a movie, a reel of images has been playing for us. But here in verse 9, God almost abruptly presses pause on the prophecy, a pause on the movie, and checks in on us. And now God's going to speak directly to us, almost like Do you understand what I'm telling you? Do you understand what I'm showing you? Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. God's now talking to us. The movie is paused. He's talking to us. And what this means is God's not just saying, do you hear what I'm saying? What he's saying is, do you hear what I'm saying and are taking it in? Are Are you applying it? Because isn't there a way you can sit in service? You you can sit in church for years and hear hundreds of sermons and not really hear any of it. (laughs) And then God grabs a hold of you and you hear the same thing you've heard 10,000 times and it's like, God loves me? It's like, yeah, he loves you. But when the spirit of God moves, he finally moves. But you can sit, you can hear and not really hear. And what verse 9 means is to hear God beyond the ear canal. It is to to take in and absorb and apply what you are really hearing. So verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. These future things that we are reading has to now be applied to us. So God's talking to you specifically. When the tyrant demands ungodliness, the godly must defy tyrants. If the tyrant wants to raise your taxes, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay the tax. If the tyrant wants you to make bricks without straw and asks impossible things from you, you do the best you can. But if the tyrant wants you to sin, it is your duty under heaven to say no. Historically, when a government gets truly evil, it demands its people to truly do evil things. And when those time comes throughout church history, God's people always and must say no. And Jesus is telling us, and if we are arrested, then we go. And we glorify God in prison. I call top bunk. (laughs) And if we are, you'll live in terror the rest of your days. (laughs) Dear God, let this be steel. (laughs) And if we're to be executed, then we are. Now there's plenty of framework in the Bible for running. Did you know that? A lot of people, you know, the Bible talks so much about martyrs. We think if the government goes, it is illegal on Tuesday for any Christian to live in America and all the Christians must line up on Tuesday and so I'm ready to die. No, there's plenty of framework in the Bible that when those times start to come, get out of Dodge. Run. What happened to what, to the, what did Jesus tell the early believers when the abomination of desolation is set up? Run. Don't even grab your coat. Get out. What did God, what did God tell, what, what happened to all the early Christians and, and when Stephen was martyred? They got out of Jerusalem. 
They ran. They weren't in sin. That was what God told them to do. There is nothing in the Bible that says we must stick around and be slaughtered. But just like the lamb, if we are brought into a kangaroo court and we are condemned to a traitor's death unjustly, then God's people are to glorify God until their last breath. In the first century, it's said that the Romans would fill the Colosseums up with Christians, men, women, and little kids, and they would let loose lions <coughs> on them. And it's recorded that the Christians would sing hymns as they were being eaten. <laughs> now again, this does not mean we need to sign ourselves up and lay down for horrible injustices, but Jesus is instructing his church that if we are to face truly horrible injustices, then we are to face it to the glory of God. And we're to let the tyrants see it. Because in the first century, all those Romans who watched those kids get eaten by lions, they all started to get converted. Because they didn't love anything in their life as much as those people loved Jesus. And slowly, Rome became a Christian empire. Now, all throughout today's reading, there has been a theme. The Antichrist was allowed to conquer the saints. The Christians, those who refuse to worship the beast, are written in the Lamb's book of life, but it's the Lamb who was slain. Now we're seeing that if the saint is to be taken captive or to be killed, they are to face this as Christ did. There's been a theme of suffering throughout today's reading. Now, our last sentence is going to tell us why. And if you remember, verse 10 is not written to some people a thousand years ago or a thousand years in the future. It's written partly and to us. So verse 10, let's read verse 10 and then we're done our reading. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Why does God allow suffering? You ever ask that question? <laughs> no, no, no. After all of the victories of chapter 12, why would God allow Satan and his son to kill and capture those within the church? Or even, why does God allow anyone in his church to suffer? And there are lots of reasons, biblically, that God would allow suffering. You know, Paul had a thorn in his flesh that God kept there to remind Paul of God's grace and power. In Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, it says, Suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character hope. You want to be more Christ-like? Look out. Suffering's probably coming. <laughs> you want to truly believe that the Word of God is the Word of God? Well, you probably need some suffering to teach you that. If we look at the book of Job, God allowed suffering to teach Job of God's sovereignty. So sometimes God uses suffering to teach us about God's bigness and our smallness. We also see that God disciplines a child he loves. So there's lots of reasons why God permits suffering in our lives. But what we see here in Revelation is that God allows suffering so that the church may endure with endurance and faith. God allows suffering in part so that his people learn to be more like him. To endure like Jesus endured, to have faith the way Jesus had faith. And one of the reasons we know this is an accurate understanding of verse 10 is because of verse 9. He who has an ear, let him hear. I'm not going to run through all of it now, but in, remember the seven letters to the seven churches? In all seven letters, we have some variation of, and I'll just do Revelation 2, 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. This 
Verses 9 is the he who has an ear. Verses 10 is, verse 10 is about the conquer. That we are to endure as Christ endured. And those who endure are given the promises of God, as we saw in all seven letters. God's people, those in the book of life, occasionally, we are slain. Occasionally, we're persecuted and mistreated. I know no one in here has been mistreated ever, but, you know, (laughs) but it happens. And we get mistreated, in a sense, the way that the Lamb, Jesus Christ, was slain and persecuted and mistreated. But let me ask you a question, because this, this is at the heart of the matter. Was Jesus defeated on the cross? <laughs> was Jesus losing when he was arrested in the garden and then mistreated and beaten? No. Well, to think otherwise would to think beastly. Was Jesus defeated on the cross? No. He was conquering. Well, when Satan had orchestrated to raise Jesus up on that cross, he wasn't defeating the Son of God. He was enthroning him. He was crowning him as worthy of all honor and praise for the rest of eternity. For the rest of eternity, heaven is going to be filled praising God for what happened that day. And loved ones, when Satan slanders us, when he mistreats us, when he sends his agents to shoot fiery darts at us, are we losing? No. (laughs) We are conquering. It's the Lamb's people conquering like the Lamb. You see, the world, to the world's point of view, it's all about power, isn't it? It's all about strength and might and being a beast and being a sea monster and devouring your enemies. But to Christ, it's an inverse. True power is willing to lay down your lives. True power is love and humility. The greatest of you will be the servant of all. This is true power in the kingdom of God. This is greatness to God. Not how many people can you beat up, but how how kind and honest can you be to the people who do beat you up? You see, from the world's point of view, the Antichrist is conquering as he arrests and he kills God's people. But according to God Almighty, the arrested and killed are the ones who are faithful. (laughs) They're the ones who are enduring to the end. Because they're conquering like God's own begotten son. Loved ones, I am of the persuasion that we are never more like Jesus Christ than when we are being treated like him. So here's my closing encouragement. Satan is alive and he is working in this world. And he has many agents, ministers, and lackeys. And his kingdom of darkness is at war with God's kingdom of light. And if you are a child of the light, that means that Satan is warring against you. And he wants to hurt you. And he wants to take you out. He wants to mar your reputation. And being mistreated, family, it's never easy. (laughs) It's never nice to be lied about. Well, I guess I'm like Jesus. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. Of course not. It's never fun. You ever read the Psalms? David seems like he's manic, doesn't he? One verse, he's like, I love the Lord. He's rescued me from my adversaries. The next verse, it's like, I'm drowning in the depths. It's, but isn't that such a picture of us? 
One day it's like, oh, hi, God loves me so much. The next minute, I am a worm. You know, this is what we, we do. And the next minute, it's like we're getting along with people. And, you know, we're in the grocery store. We're, everyone's nice to us. And then someone says something nasty or gives us a look and we're falling apart. We read the Psalms. This is the life of the godly. <laughs> this is what it is. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sweating drops of blood. The day before, he was merrymaking and drinking wine and probably being accused as a drunk. This is the Christian life. But the encouragement here is when Satan's agents are attacking you, if you faithfully endure without throwing away your witness, you are never more like the lamb in those moments. What today's text is showing us is loved ones, written ones, suffer well to the glory of God. You want to be in God's book? Then don't be afraid to be treated like God was. <laughs> and when that comes... You meet it with faith and endurance the way that the lamb did. And if you have sickness in your body, did you know sickness is the result of the fall? We were never meant to have sickness. Sin. Sin. We saw in the book of Job that sometimes Satan attacks with illness. But if you have sickness in your body, or whether you're slandered or under stress, sometimes we're our greatest oppressors, aren't we? Like some days we're great and the next days I'm getting myself all anxious over nothing. <laughs> we're great at being our own tyrants. Whatever we're dealing with, today's text, God is encouraging you today to faithfully endure to the glory of God. For this is lamb-like. This is what it means to conquer to God. Do you want to finish your race well? Then finish it like Jesus. <laughs> If you're going to get mistreated till the day that you die, then be mistreated to the glory of God. This is what it means to conquer for his namesake. So again, run your race well, loved ones, and finish strong with endurance and faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. <laughs> we thank you for the truths that are contained within it. We thank you for your kindness, your grace, your mercy. We thank you that you are both the just and the justifier. We thank you that you are both holy and patient. God, we thank you for who you are and how you operate, that your ways are not our ways, that you are the God most high. God, we thank you for your book. We thank you that you loved us even while we were yet sinners. Who is like you? <laughs> and so, God, we, we, we pray for a few things here. First, God, we, we do pray that you may capture us and draw us to yourself and separate us, not, not only unto you, but from sin. And God, we pray that your spirit may move so mightily in our lives, God, that we may truly be transformed by the renewing of our minds.
God, we ask that you, you may so capture our thought life and our emotions and help them to be thoroughly rooted and planted in you, for this is the blessed life. And God, we pray that as suffering rises and evil rises, God, help us, help us to meet these things as you have in your Son. Help us to meet things with endurance, God, to not grow weary in our running, but to rest wholly upon you. And help us to meet it with faithfulness, with, with, a, with a rootedness in your truth. And God, we pray for anyone in here who does not know you, that they may come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ today. That you may so grab a hold of them and incorporate them into the family. So that when they stand there on that day, God, that when you open up your book, you, they may hear you pronounce their name. <laughs> and may be entered into your kingdom eternally. So God, we ask that you would move mightily amongst us, God, and help us, help us to bear good fruit and prune the things in us that need to be pruned. And we ask all these things in accordance to your will and your word. God, if anyone here needs prayer, we ask that they would go up and talk to our prayer team over there. And if anyone here is needs encouragement, God, let them You've assembled them to a church, not a live stream. (laughs) Let them talk to the church and, and pour their hearts out to those who are here, God, because we've come to both be served and to serve. So, God, we ask you would bless us now, be with us, and in Jesus' name, all who agreed said, amen. Stand and worship. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary, Baltimore. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. If you can't be here in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, as Pastor Josh says, study the Word to live the Word to share the Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon.